We're continuing this morning in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, today we're going to be in Matthew 9, uh, verses 18 through 31. And we're calling this fame um, because we're going to see in this passage that Jesus' notoriety is beginning to spread. Um, if it happened today, uh, we might say that he's going viral. He's really uh, starting to become more popular news about the amazing things that um, that are, go are, are going out. And that's always been the case, frankly. It's kind of interesting to think about um, how today we say going viral because things tend to spread online. But things have always spread. News about amazing things have always spread, uh, whether by word of mouth, um, whether by by old school post, uh, sending letters and things in the mail, uh, by telephone, uh, by email, and now by, by social media. Things have spread because as human beings, we're designed to praise. We're designed to talk about things that we think are good. Um, and so if, if we get some good news or we find out something amazing, we see something uh, that's really cool, we want to share it with somebody. That's just how we're designed, how God made us to be. Um, and so in today's passage, Matthew notes after each of the stories uh, that we're going to look at, we're going to look at two uh, stories that he tells in the Gospel of Matthew. And then he's going to end each one of those talking about the fact that Jesus, that, that word about Jesus was spreading uh, throughout the region. His fame and renown were growing. Let's get into it here in verses 18 through 26, only sleeping. It says this, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went back in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So first off, we see here a ruler comes and kneels before Jesus. We see a powerful person recognizing Jesus' power and authority. In this case, it's a Jewish ruler. He's actually a leader in the synagogue. And from Mark and Luke's account, we get his name. Uh, his name was Jairus. Um, and what we see here is that not all of the religious leaders of the day uh, were opposed to Jesus. Certainly we hear about the Pharisees and the scribes uh, who are getting upset with him all the time and they're, they're mad at him, but it clearly wasn't all of them. There were some who respected him, who had come to him for help. We don't really know fully what is Jairus' opinion of Jesus before this moment. Um, it could be that he was among those who were upset with Jesus before this moment, uh, but then his daughter uh, dies and he thinks there's only one person who can help. And so he comes to Jesus and he kneels before her. He shows him the submission that he rightly deserves. And he says to him, lay your hand on her and she will live. And this was a shocking request for a Jewish leader to make. Frankly, um, it's not something that really we would necessarily connect with because we don't have the same kind of 
feelings about touching dead bodies that Jewish uh, leaders would have had in that day. Um, because, you know, we do that. Uh, there are certainly many open casket funerals where people come and they lay their hands on the body, they touch the body, they, uh, we're, we're not as, it's something that maybe is a little bit frightening for some, but it's not something that's taboo necessarily. But touching a dead body for a Jewish person at this time, um, they would have felt that it would make them unclean. It says as much in Numbers chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. It says, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanliness was still on him. So we can see there that, that most rabbis wouldn't even touch a dead body because of that uh, provision. They didn't want to become unclean, and they felt like this was something that we just shouldn't do. So even this request from this man to come and touch the dead body of his daughter would have been seen as offensive by many people. And yet Jesus doesn't hesitate. He comes to her. He says, yes, I will go. And he goes and he starts and follows the man. He gets up and follows the man. He's willing to do it. And on his way to Jairus' house, uh, he encounters a woman who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. This suffering woman, she reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment. And she believes that if she touches it, she'll be made well. Now, and then Jesus honors her faith, right? He said he feels it, he turns, he sees her, and he says, Take heart, woman, your faith has made you well. Um, but note that even though Jesus honors her faith and, and, and that she believed that if she touched it, his garment, that, her, that uh, she would be made well, it's not that his garment in itself had magical powers, right? This is something that he sees her heart, he honors her faith, um, but... For us to go seeking after religious relics for this purpose, that they might have some magical, miraculous properties, uh, is misguided. That's not what this passage is teaching. This passage isn't teaching that Jesus' garment was uh, you know, just so radiating with this miraculous power that she could touch it and it would make her well. No, it's her faith and Jesus' grace, more importantly, that makes her well. He knows her heart, and so he honors that That. Uh, that effort. But what we see here is um, if we read these passages the way that Matthew's original audience would have read them, um, we would be shocked. If we kind of got to this point, we would have seen now uh, this trifecta of uncleanness uh, that is coming um, at Jesus. There's all sorts of people who have no right to be approaching Jesus or frankly reproaching anybody, and yet Jesus accepts them unclean people who shouldn't even be in town most of the time, they should be staying outside the camp, um, are approaching Jesus and he doesn't rebuke them. And he's interacting with Gentiles so much of the time. There's all kinds of problems. That if we were Matthew's reader, we would be just going, who is this? This isn't a normal rabbi. Normal rabbis would be shunning these people. They would be, um, you know, treating Gentiles like dogs. They would not be having any of this. And yet, 
Jesus interacts with them. That this trifecta of uncleanness that I'm speaking of, um, we can see in scripture, but it's these three things is leprosy, um, someone suffering from a discharge and a dead body. So a few passages, a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus actually touch a person who was suffering from leprosy. Um, we see here this woman touch his garment who's suffering from a discharge and he's on his way to go and touch a dead body. And if we think about that in light of passages like this in Numbers chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. This passage would have certainly been on Matthew's mind as he was recording and recounting these events that that these people that were commanded to be put outside of the camp because they are unclean are the very people who touch Jesus, who approach Jesus, and Jesus touches them. He doesn't rebuke them. He heals them. He solves the problem that they're dealing with. So Jesus had already healed the leprous person. He touched him. The man had approached him, and Jesus had touched him to make him clean. This woman with a discharge now has touched his garment, and now Jesus is on his way to go and touch a dead body. We can see why Jesus made the Pharisees apoplectic, right? They didn't understand any of this because it seemed that Jesus was doing everything wrong. But because of who he was, he was doing everything right. So Jesus finally arrives at the ruler's house, at Jairus' house, to find that the official mourners had already arrived, Um, possibly even uninvited, right? This is an important man. In the community, Jarius is an important man. Um, he certainly would have, uh, under normal circumstances, if his daughter died, he would have called the professional mourners to come. There would be people who mourned uh, professionally. They would come and do it for. They would be paid mourners uh, to show the grief of the family even more. Um, and and so, but in this case, because he is Jarius, because he's this ruler, um, it's very possible that they showed up after they heard that this girl died just because they know, um, you know, they want to get in. This is an important guy. He's probably pretty wealthy. Um, They could get a good payday out of it. And so Jesus sees this crowd mourning this girl's death, probably some legitimate legitimate mourners as well, people that knew her. Um, And he tells them that the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they laugh at him. Um, and, and, but it does cause us to question, I think, uh, appropriately, um, is that really what's happening here? Is she actually sleeping? It, were they, did they misdiagnose this? Did they not understand that she wasn't actually dead, uh, that she really was just sleeping? Um, and no, that's not what's going on here. That was um, certainly something that, that was even used euphemistically to talk about death was sleep. And so Jesus saying, you know, go away, she's just sleeping, um, is, is not him saying, oh, you've got it wrong. It's, it's him saying, you know, this is a temporary situation. He's foreshadowing the fact that he's going to restore her to life. So presumably the disciples help put the crowd outside and then Jesus goes in and raises the girl from the dead. And it works. And so then the report begins to spread. The news of this goes throughout the district. Now, Jesus had been doing amazing things. He'd already healed leprosy. He'd cast out demons. He'd had this amazing teaching and preaching. Uh, all these amazing things had been happening. But now he has, re- he has raised 
the daughter of a very high-profile member of the community back to life. This is a bigger deal probably than anything Jesus has done at this point. Um, not just because it's actually raising someone from the dead, but it's also the daughter of this significant man. This is a high-profile resurrection. Jesus' fame is increasing. His news is spreading. But the thing that we need to see here is that fame is not enough. Jesus' fame and renown are not enough. It isn't enough just for Jesus' name to be known. It's not just enough for him to be known as this amazing man. Um, Jesus' fame on its own is frankly meaningless. At the time of his crucifixion, only a small handful of people would still stand with him, including some of his disciples who, who were not willing to continue to vouch for him after he was arrested. So this fame is fleeting, right? We see that this is not something that's going to last because although he was popular, although he was known, although this news was spreading, um, it wouldn't last because just being a fan of Jesus is not enough. We'll see this continuing here. In verses 27 through 31, do you believe? And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. So two blind men followed Jesus. Now, that's one of those lines that, that we see in Scripture that um, I, I just think is funny. Uh, I mean, it, it's pretty humorous, the idea of two blind men followed Jesus. How? How did they follow him? They couldn't see him. So how were they following him? Well, frankly, at this point in Jesus's ministry, it wouldn't have been difficult. All they had to do is listen for the crowd. Jesus had crowds following him. When he went into a home, people packed in. Um, it was probably not too difficult. People shouted out for him. Uh, it probably was not too difficult for them to figure out where he was simply by listening for the sound of the crowd. And they call out to him and they call him son of David. Now, this is a loaded term at this point. Uh, this is a, a loaded uh, term because it evoked the Davidic covenant, right? To call him the son of David was not just to note that he is a descendant of David because through um, his presumed father, Joseph, he was a descendant of David. Um, and that's not what they're saying. They're not saying, oh yeah, you're part of David's family. No, they are saying, you are very possibly the son of David who is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant, God's promise to David that we find in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. It says, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. This is God talking to King David. And so he's saying, this is when your days are fulfilled and you walk with your fathers, when you die, I'll raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, certainly the immediate offspring of David lived up to a lot of this. King Solomon uh, lived up to a lot of the promises that we find here in the Davidic covenant. He did build a house for the Lord. He built the temple. He did rule. God was faithful to him in spite of the fact that he was not always faithful to Yahweh. But there's this thing that gets repeated in this covenant that his throne shall be established forever. And that just, frankly, did not happen. King Solomon uh, certainly had descendants who ruled and reigned on the throne. You could say at that point his throne is continuing, that, that through his offspring his throne is continuing. But eventually that ends because all of the Israelites go into exile in Babylon. There is no king on the throne in Israel for a long time. And then certainly when Jesus shows up on the scene, there is no king on the throne in Israel. They're being ruled by the Roman government. And so this idea of a throne that shall be established forever is not fulfilled at the time that Jesus arrives. And they, the Israelites start to notice this. And they notice this about the Davidic covenant, that there's this promise that one of David's offspring will have a throne that will last forever. And so that is what these men are pointing to. They're saying, we think you're the guy. We think you are this son of David, this descendant of David whose throne will last forever. Jesus turns to them and says, do you believe that I am able to do this? And this is an interesting question, right? Do they believe that Jesus can heal them? And Jesus often asked these kind of strange questions to people that were asking for him, his, his help, people that were asking for healing or that seemed to need healing. He did this uh, in another instance with the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. And this man's lying at the, at the pool of Bethesda. And the pool of Bethesda was a healing pool. It was supposed to be that the angel of the Lord would come and stir up the waters. And if you made it there and touched the water, you would be healed. And so this man is there, but he's been there for a long time. And Jesus walks up to him and says, says that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So Jesus knew that this man was regularly carried to the pool of Bethesda and waited there day after day, year after year. He'd been there for a long time. And yet Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? He's lying next to the healing pool. He'd been doing it for uh, years. And yet Jesus still asks him, do you want to be healed? And we have to ask ourselves these questions too. Do we want to be healed? Do we want to be set free from our sins? Sometimes we get comfortable in that state. Sometimes even in a bad place, we can get comfortable. We can get comfortable with our sin. We can get comfortable with our brokenness. We're used to it. And sometimes what we're used to can feel comfortable, can feel safe to just stay in that place. Even if it's something that we don't want to do, that we don't feel is good for us or that we wish would stop in some way, there's still something that we want to hold on to it. And so for this man, Jesus is asking him because maybe he doesn't want to be healed. Maybe he's comfortable with what his life has turned into. But he asks him the question. And so if we want, if then if we answer that question that we want to be set free, we want to be healed, then the question comes, do we believe that Jesus can do it? The question that Jesus asks 
ask these men here. Because sometimes, even if we want to be set free, even if we want to be healed, we doubt that Jesus can actually help. So do you believe that Jesus is able to set you free? Do you believe that he's able to heal? These men answer yes. They say, yes, we believe that you can do this. And then Jesus responds, according to your faith, be it done to you. Jesus heals them by saying these words. He simply says these words, according to your faith, be it done to you, and he heals them. And this is a great example about how our faith is meant to work. How, how we are saved and, and how we are sanctified, how we're changed, how we grow in Christ is in this way. Paul sums it up in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 by saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith is the means by which we access grace. So same thing here. We see Jesus talk to these men. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They clearly want it done. They're asking him for it. So they want to be healed. Do they believe he's able to do it? He says, they say yes. And he says, according to your faith, be it done to you. So it's not that their faith itself heals them. He's the one that's healing them, but according to their faith. So that's why we talk about salvation by being by grace through faith, that we access that grace, we access that healing, we access the mercy, forgiveness, the love of Jesus through faith. It's the way that we access it, but it's not our doing. It's through faith. We must want it and believe that he can do it, and then we get it. It's by grace, a gift from God, nothing that we earn or accomplish or do on our own. And then after this, he tells them, see that you don't say anything to anyone, and they don't do what he asks. They spread his fame. Perhaps this is to demonstrate how irresistible it is to proclaim what Jesus has done. It's hard to say. Jesus tells them, you know, don't say anything to anyone. We've talked about before that when Jesus says these things, he says this to a few people of like, don't tell anyone, maybe go show yourself to the priest or something like that. Um, why was he saying those things? Why would he tell people not to say anything? Um, and, and I think there's a couple things we can get from that. One being that Jesus knew where this road was headed. He knew that as he did these things, as his fame continued to grow, as he be, continued to do all these amazing things, he knew that that was heading for the cross. And he knew that he needed to do some things to fulfill scripture and, and, and gather a following and all these things that he wanted to do before he got to his work on the cross. And so um, keeping the news down would extend that time. Um, and even, even in, in those, with those efforts in place, you know, he, he only does ministry for about three years before he goes to the cross. But it can also, I think, show us just how irresistible it is to tell people about Jesus. That when, when we've truly experienced the blessings that he can give us, it can be irresistible to spread the word about who he is and what he's done. <clears throat> but again, we see that they spread his frame throughout the district. The previous story, after he heals the, the woman, the, his, his, his fame spreads, the, the word starts to go out. They spread it through the region, through the district. But again, we see that fame is not enough. It's not enough for Jesus to be popular. It's not enough for him to have fans. Jesus must be Savior and Lord. People must submit to his authority and acknowledge him as king. 
it's not enough just for Jesus to to be well known or for people to, to like him and to think that he's a good that he's good. He has to be Savior and Lord. We must accept him as our Savior, acknowledge that he's made a way for us through the cross to have peace with God, to be reconciled to God, that we can find forgiveness for our sins that separate us from God in Jesus, and then to surrender our lives to him, to make him Lord, to give him permission, to give him control, to take our lives and do what he wants with it, to give him control over our lives. That's so much more than being a fan of Jesus, right? We can be a fan of a lot of things that we don't give control of our lives to. But so often, you see people that come around Jesus and they just want to be fans. They just want to be at the distance. They want to say, yeah, he's great. This is great. We love it. He says some good things. But they don't surrender their lives. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's where you're at. I encourage you today to stop being a fan and become a follower of Jesus. We'll wrap it up with some takeaways for today. How should we then live? These are takeaways that we can take from this passage, things that we shouldn't just read the Bible. We should be changed by the Bible. And so um, how should we then live as a result of this passage today? What are some things that we might take away from this? Number one, as I was just saying, be a follower of Jesus, not just a fan of Jesus. So often, even as, as believers, we can slip into that where we go and start to live like, oh yeah, we think he's good. We think this is a, he's got some good ideas, but we're not going to be changed by him. We're not willing to, to go where he wants us to go, to do what he wants us to do. Uh, we'll just hype it up, but we're not really going to change our lives because of it. Number two, believe that Jesus is able to change you and desire that change. Those are kind of the two questions that anybody who comes to Jesus is forced to to reckon with, right? Do do we believe that he's able to save us? Do we believe that he's able to heal us, to fix our brokenness, to take our burdens? And do we want that? Do we want him to save us? Do we want him to change us? Do we want to be healed? And then number three, recognize that we are saved and sanctified by grace through faith. That we have to be saved and sanctified by grace through faith. That's not just not just the one-time salvation of, of giving our lives to Jesus and, and recognizing that he's forgiven us and that our, our, we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus and that we'll go to be with him when we die, but also sanctified. That means changed from the inside out day by day, year by year, that we become more and more like Jesus. That also happens not by our own efforts, but by grace through faith, that he changes us also by his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can get into your word, that we can read these stories, these amazing accounts that Matthew shares with us of all the things that Jesus did and the responses that people have. We see all kinds of responses through this gospel to what Jesus did. And one of the most popular ones is that people were just amazed. People were just uh, blown away. They were. They thought this was the, the coolest thing, and so they wanted to spread his fame. They wanted to tell other people about it. But God, so many of them, it seems, do not become followers of him. They're just fans. Let that not be us. Let us be followers of Jesus and not merely fans of Jesus. Let us believe that you are able to change us, that you want to change us, and that we want that change because we want what you want. 
and let us surrender to you day by day. In your name we pray, amen.